Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christy Getting His Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, July 17th, 2021. Once again, right now it is Wednesday morning, and we have our good friend TruthVids here with us to present part 44 of his 100 Proofs that the Israelites were white. In our last presentation in the series, we discussed the blessings of Jacob and Moses upon the 12 tribes of Israel. Now we shall explain further how many of these blessings had evidently been fulfilled in the history of the development of European culture and civilization. When the promises were made to Abraham that his seed would become many nations, there were only scattered tribes of Jepethites in Europe, and perhaps some other Shemites, such as the Lydians. There was no Germany. There was no England, no Ireland, no France. There were no Scandinavian nations, as we know them, and most of the tribes, which ultimately became the nations of modern Europe, were not yet in Europe. That is because they mostly descended from the ancient Israelites of our Bibles. But usually, by the time they arrived in Europe, they had assumed other names. Hello, Truthfids. Thank you for being here once again. Hey, Bill. Thanks, family. Yeah, so uh, here we're going to see that um, a lot of the old nations, like pre-Christ time, you know, 500 B.C., and a bit later, were still kind of following some of the Israelite traditions. They had kings of Judah, they had priests, which seemed to resemble Levitical priests, and they had a lot of customs that all resembled the, the Israelites, right? And a lot of people don't realize that, that they even like sacrificed bulls and, you know, to the God before a war or for traditions, etc., and, um, you know, if you read the Bible, you see that the Israelites are constantly going off into paganism and, and Yahweh had to send a judge or later a prophet to bring them back, you know, to him to, to back on the right path. So if these Israelites were constantly spreading into Europe, you, you would expect them to be going off into paganism and still but still have some loose traditions, like, as I said, to have kings from Judah and, uh, you know, priests and all that kind of stuff that they would still loosely resemble Israelite customs and traditions. And, and that's what we see. And that's what we're going to go into. Uh, right, Bill? Well, well, right. Absolutely. If we read the book of Judges, the children of Israel were doing every man what was right in his own eyes. And I think that's mentioned twice in the book of Judges, if I'm not mistaken. I, I, I don't think I am. The people were often going off into paganism in the book of Judges, and the nation wasn't as organized as it became later un until the time of Saul and David. When it became more organized, David reorganized the priesthood and, and did a lot of things to bring the people to the faith of, of Yahweh that they should have, the faith of their God that they should have. That didn't last long, because Solomon himself, David's son and successor, went off and, and married all these pagan wives, and after Solomon died, the nation was once again divided. 
Jeroboam I became the king of the northern 12 tribes, and he decreed the religion of the golden calves, which they had worshipped in Egypt. They, he decreed that they return to that. He mandated it in among those 10 northern tribes, set up his idols, and, and created a, a distinct priesthood of his own, a pagan priesthood. So as the children of Israel were migrating abroad, and, and they did migrate abroad, and we will demonstrate that, they were bringing pagan, they were bringing their pagan practices with them, practices that came from the ancient Canaanites, mixed with what apparently were the Hebrew traditions and customs. So we have sort of a hybrid religion overseas, and, and that's evident in in history, as we will show, in the history of Ireland, for the most part today, and, and the Gauls of the continent, in these Druidical priests. Before I begin, I must admit that last week, discussing the blessing of Moses for the tribe of Levi, I missed a reference that I shouldn't have, which I actually caught preparing for today's program, where in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 9, that we discussed last week, Moses said of Levi, or two, in our last presentation, let me say that, it was two weeks ago, for they have observed thy word and kept thy covenant. When Moses said that, he must have been referring to what is recorded in Exodus chapter 32, verses 25 to 29, in the aftermath of the incident with the golden calf. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on Yahweh's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith Yahweh the God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother. The true instructions were probably a little more detailed than that. And every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. The Bible's written in a very concise manner, and I'm sure Moses only wanted them to slay certain men, or certain men that were engaging in certain activities. For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to Yahweh, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. So the Israelites had gone off into this golden calf worship, they degenerated into pagan practices or whatever they had been doing, and the Levites stood by Moses and therefore by God, and for that Moses had given them that blessing. So I had to explain that. It should have been in our last presentation. So, so um, even if it was their own uh, brother or, or son or father, if they were worshipping that calf, then, then they killed them and they proved themselves that they were with Yahweh 
uh, over even their own uh, siblings or family, right? Right. And, and we, have to, well, we have to look at this from the big picture, that there are, by this time, hundreds of thousands of Israelites. And 99.9% .9 of them would not hear the words of Moses. And it's most likely that not all of those Israelites were engaging in the behavior associated with the paganism of the golden calf. But Moses spoke to his own men, the, the men of his own tribe, the tribe of Levi, and sent them out to do this. We can't assume that every Levite was within reach of Moses' speaking. But sufficient men of his own tribe had gathered to him and went out and done this, and they probably slew people that they saw engaging in whatever practices were associated with the golden calf, the people that were committing these idolatrous practices. Now, the law had already been given by this time, and those practices may have included sexual indiscretions and things like that, and those men would be targeted. The people engaging in those things would be targeted. So the scripture is written in a very concise manner. Usually the, the full story is a lot more complex than what we're told in scripture. We have to think it through. So I don't think Moses was telling them to kill random Israelites, but these people worshiping the golden calf, they would be killed. And, and certain patterns of behavior would be indicative of their worship of the golden calf. If I had this license to do today, if, if we were Levites today in any city in the West, and Moses was there and he told us, go out and kill these people, who would you target? Sodomites, lesbians, women with purple and green hair, and people with piercings all over their bodies, and people that you, you can apparently immediately know are worshiping the golden calf. Race mixers, of course, they would be first. And, and so I'm sure that the circumstances back then may have been slightly different from today, but the idea is the same, I'm sure. That's my opinion. Yeah, and those people uh, corrupt the surrounding neighbors, right? So, like, like you know, in the, in the body of Christ, if you remove them, then the society can go back to normal, right? By Absolutely. And set the example as well. Absolutely. Put away the sinners from among you. That's the command even in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The cancer has to be removed for the body to be healthy. So now we're going to present what we have enumerated as proof number 56. Israel was to be ruled by kings of Judah, which relates to the nobility and monarchy of Europe. And of course, we can't draw all the, the connections 
because all of the connections aren't available to us in history, but we can draw sufficient connections to see how this prophecy could have possibly been fulfilled in history, in at least some aspects. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. I know you've been waiting for this topic for quite a while. Well, well yeah, that, um, I think we already mentioned it, but there's this great promise that there one day be kings in Judah. And then it takes, is it 400 years or maybe 500 years until David from that prophecy? And uh, if, if Yahweh said that there would always be lawmakers, then um, it didn't necessarily have to be. Um, you know, David, he, he wasn't under an obligation to make uh, David a king because there were already kings from the Zara line, right? It was the Israelites who demanded a king, but he had already technically fulfilled the prophecy, and this was going on all throughout Europe, right? Yes, it was going on. In, in some ways, it was going on in in Palestine, in Israel, in, in ways that aren't readily apparent. I mean, Judges chapter 9, Abimelech was ruling as a king over the men of Shechem. It, it's what we consider a king. What do we consider a king? That that Today, people have this errant concept in their head that nobility is a specific class of men who are better than other men and therefore deserve to be kings. And king is some sort of official office that some higher authority, namely God, installs you into just because you happen to be of a different family than other people of your nation. Well, that is true of the children of Israel in general because the scepter belongs to Judah. But there have been many kings throughout history who were not of Judah, but who claimed the right to be kings by reason that they thought that their birth was better than all of their own kin. And the, the way people see that office of kingship, as if it's some official capacity or position outside of scripture, the, the truth is that that's an artificial construct that this royal family in, in England, that they don't have any God-given right to rule over their fellow man. They're not even white. They're not even Israelites. They're mixed. But they would claim that God-given right. That The family of Herod, after Herod the Great died, all of Herod's descendants thought that they had some sort of God-given right to rule over Palestine where God only placed them over Palestine in order to fulfill his will in the ministry of Christ. So yes, they had a purpose, but it wasn't the purpose that they thought it was. So it, it's complex that this idea of what a king is, because there's the perspective of the world versus the perspective of God, right? So, we have legitimate kings who were meant to rule over us, just not in the way that the world thinks, but in the way that God thinks. And, and that's we're going to present some of that and, and the historical proof of that this evening. 
But a king is only a ruler. And a man can install himself as king over any city if he has the physical ability, the power to do that. So men have, throughout history, installed themselves as kings by force. Now, the Greeks wouldn't call them kings. The Greeks would call them tyrants. And they actually had two different words to describe the kings of cities. One was tyrannus, which is the word that we get tyrant from. And the other was basilius, which is the word that they used for king. That's a short digression. I'll, I'll try to cut it there. So in scripture, and, and we're going to talk more about this later, what we had Abimelech rule as a king over the men of Shechem, and we had Hiram ruling over Tyre. And because Hiram was ruling as a king over Tyre, the general perception was that Tyre was a separate nation from the Israelites in our modern terms. And that's not true. Because Tyre was in the territory of Asher. It was rewarded to the children of Israel as their, part of their inheritance. Now, the Jews will try, Jewish commentary, Jewish commentators and people that are Judaized in their opinions of Scripture, they would agree and they've often written that Tyre was a separate nation than, than the rest of Israel because it had a king. But that's not true. Hiram was the ruler of an Israelite city because Tyre was given to Israel. And Israel did claim that inheritance. There's plenty of evidence that Israelites inhabited the Tyre, the, some people might pronounce it Tyre, the city that Hiram ruled over. But Hiram immediately subjected himself to David because David was the king of Israel and Hiram was an Israelite. Abimelech was king of Shechem in the language of the King James Version, and the Hebrew word is Melech, which means to become king or queen, to reign, which really just means to be a ruler. That word Melech is what gives us the Melchi in the word Melchizedek. It's a very closely related word. So Abimelech was king of Shechem, Judges chapter 9, verse 16. In the Judges period, many of the cities of Israel had kings or rulers, but they weren't rulers over all Israel. They were only local rulers over a part of what was usually their own tribe. They were the rulers of, of you had rulers of tens, rulers of the hundreds, rulers of a thousand. If you were a ruler of a thousand, you were basically the king of that part of your tribe's land. So men would become kings of cities. But there was no king in Israel because the children of Israel 
had a high priest and judges, they didn't have a king. Yahweh was king over the entire nation. So just because a man was king of the city doesn't mean that he wasn't subject to the high priests and judges of Israel. He was just the ruler of that portion of his own tribe or his own town. So it, it's complex how, how we should view a king is complex and a complex and conditional situation. It's not black and white, right? So that that's um, complicated, but understanding that, we can understand how Hiram was an Israelite and a king of Tyre at the same time. Abimelech was an Israelite in the judges period and the king of Shechem at the same time for three years, I believe. And he was an evil man, where Hiram was ostensibly or evidently a good man. So there were kings over various cities, but that's not necessarily the fulfillment of the promises to Judah. They were just men who often had power to install themselves as rulers, or their families ceded that to them. That their families saw them as a patriarch or as a as a great man. Their their local, the people of their own local tribe, the inhabitants of that city, because it was supposed to be that these cities belonged to certain tribes and were part of their inheritance. That the people of those tribes would be occupying those particular cities. So, if you were the patriarch of a portion of your tribe you would be the ruler of the town where the tribe lived. And that would just be natural. So you might call yourself a king, or you might be given that title king, but that doesn't make you the king over Israel. That's just that you're the local ruler of that town. In those days, a king usually only ruled over a city. And some cities became great and strong, and they became city-states. Tyre became a city-state. Athens became a city-state, and in Athens, only Athenians, only Jepethites Gepethite, of the tribe of Javan lived in Athens, but not the entire tribe. So the king of Athens didn't rule over other men of Javan who dwelt in other cities. Well, sometimes he did when the Athenians conquered those cities, but it wasn't typical. That's what I have to say about that. We have to look at kingship in a more complex way that, than the dumbed-down estimation of it that we have today, in my opinion. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 31, and this is condensed from a paper I wrote 15 years ago, um, Classical Records of Trojan Roman Judah, I've condensed it as much as I could. In 1 Kings chapter 4, the wisdom of Solomon was said to exceed that of several other men, where it reads, For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezraite. Now that word Ezraite, the way that Hebrew is written backwards and forwards, or the way that vowels are added into the word, 
with points by the by the rabbis that didn't exist in the original. Ezrahite could very easily be Zarahite, right? Ethan the Ezrahite and Heman and Calco and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all nations round about. Now, now except for Haman even though we don't know this particular Haman, because there were several, and Ethan the Ezrahite, who we can know because there is a psalm which is attributed to him, one of the psalms. These names are a mystery. Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all nations round about. So these men are being associated with all nations round about, and we don't know these names from elsewhere in Scripture, except in First Chronicles chapter 6, where there's a similar record, which informs us that these men are descendants of Zara, the son of Judah. But in spite of their wisdom, most of them are never mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. So we have to ask who they possibly were. Since the passage in 1 Kings chapter 4 is speaking of these men in comparison to the wisdom of Solomon, they must have been extremely wise men. And they must have had a certain amount of fame for Solomon to be mentioned as having exceeded them in wisdom. So they must have been famous at the time that the record was written during the life of Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 4. These men must have been renowned at that time, which is probably about 950 BC. Since the passage in 1 Kings chapter 4 is speaking of these men in relation to the nations round about, that may be our first clue to further identifying some of them. Yeah, yeah do... so Bill, it would just be like, um, say, Alfred the Great, if you compared him to Charlemagne, who was about 100 years before and was in a nation roundabout, right, like France compared to England. It's, it's kind of like a comparison to that, that um, this – Dardanus and Calcol must have been famous around Israel somewhere, right? Precisely. Exactly. <clears throat> In Greek literature, Dardanus, Darda, Dardanus, the Greeks always put their own endings on names, on Greek names, and, and sometimes on foreign names so that they could decline the word. In Greek literature, Dardanus is the founder of the settlement, which later became known as Troy. Its principal city was known by two names, Ilios, or Ilium, after Ilus, and Troy, after Tros, who were both said to be descendants of Dardanus. And you could find this in Homer's Iliad, or Homer's Odyssey, I believe in the Iliad, but you can also find this in Strabo in his Geography, Book 13. Homer confidently gives a genealogy from Dardanus down through Ilus and Tros, after whom Troy is named, 
and several other generations unto Priam, the king of Troy, when the city was destroyed by the Greeks. The larger district around Troy became known as the Troad, and the Greeks claim that the walls of the city were built by the sea god Poseidon, and we find that in Diodorus Siculus's Library of History, Book 4. Dardanus was said to have first come to the land which became known as the Troad by sea. Traditions concerning his religion connect the Trojans to Samothrace, which is an island not far off the coast, and also to Crete. And some of the notable geographical names which are found in the Troad are similar to names found in Crete. This Mount Ida is one of them. There's a Mount Ida in the Troad. There's a Mount Ida in Crete. And it there, makes sense. Crete is just right off the coast of Israel, and that would be kind of the in-between point if you're going to decide um, where should we go in Greece. You, you go to Crete and then plan it out, right? Well, well right. Crete was an island that had been... It may have been inhabited before the Phoenicians. I believe it was. It was probably inhabited by other, either tribes of Ham or, or of Shem, or possibly of Japheth. But the Phoenicians had come to occupy Crete. And this is a different account, it, it's a digression here, but Minos was a Phoenician. Minos was said to have been from the city of Tyre, which was an Israelite city at the time. He was related to Cadmus the Phoenician, who was credited with bringing arts and letters to the Greeks from the Hebrews. There were Hebrew arts and Hebrew letters and Europa was, I believe, the sister of Minos by the more popular accounts. And it was her for whom Europe was named. Crete is a pivotal step in the populating of Europe. If you read all of the ancient accounts of the populating of the cities of the Greeks and Anatolia, Crete plays a major factor. After the Iliad, in one place in the Odyssey, Homer mentions the Dorians as being in Crete. Now, Homer described the entire Greek world and all the nations that were either neutral or, or that had taken the part of the Trojans in the Trojan War and come to the aid of Troy, or had taken the part of the Danans in the Trojan War, and had assisted in the fall of Troy. So this was like a world war at the time. And Homer described the entire known world, the world known to him as a Greek. And even Strabo, the geographer, he admitted that Homer was the beginning of Greek geography. And he 
explained that Homer's geography was complete for the time in which Homer was writing. Strabo saw it as definitive, as having been definitive. So how, if there were Dorians in Greece, how would Homer not mention any Dorians in the Iliad where he lists all the surrounding nations, he describes all these surrounding nations and what side they fought for. In the Odyssey, he only mentions them, and he mentions them as being on Crete, because, like you just said, Crete was that stopping point between Palestine and Europe, and the Asian Sea and, and Greece. And um, Strabo actually defends Homer constantly, doesn't he, against critics, and he points out that everything he said w was true, and he verifies it all. Everything, well, well, I mean, Strabo could sort out the mythology of Homer from, from the historical facts, but yes, Strabo believed that the geography and historical facts in Homer were absolutely accurate, and Strabo did defend him, yes. Throughout Homer and later Greek literature, the Trojans are called Dardans, or sometimes that's spelled in English, right? Dardanians. After Dardanus. But sometimes Homer mentions Trojans and Dardans together, distinguishing the Dardans of Troy as Trojans from the Dardans who dwelt elsewhere in other cities surrounding, in, in the vicinity of the Troad. There were other cities of Dardans. They weren't all in Troy. We are told that the Lycians are Dardans. And that's in Book 10, where Strabo cited Homer. And that, Book 10 of Strabo's geography. And that Dardans are also found among the Illyrians. And that's in Book 7 of Strabo's geography. From Homer's Iliad, Book 2. It is clear that Dardans dwelt in other towns throughout the Troad. Both Herodotus, in Book 7 of his Histories, and Strabo, who quotes Herodotus in Book 14 of his Geography, tell us that Pamphylia, the district on the southern coast of Anatolia, was a colony founded by Calchas, who was a Trojan. And Calchas was also considered to be a wise man and a prophet by the Greeks, Strabo's Geography, Book 14. So if Dardanus is not Darda, and if Calchas is not Calchol, then why does the Bible mention these men as if they were men of renown without telling us who they were? And where did Dardanus the Trojan come from when he founded the colony which became Troy. How are these names belonging to the founders of these Anatolian nations so similar to the names of notable men of Judah who lived in the same period and in close geographical proximity to Anatolia? And if these are not the men to whom Solomon was compared in wisdom, then why was Solomon compared to men who amounted to nothing, who are unknown, even though they were from nations round about? 
So they must be the same men. They so must Bill, be. This would have been about the Exodus period, roughly, right? Give or take when Dada Calchas um, spread out and then by two, two, three hundred years later, you have the wars of Troy. And um, they're already really famous because their descendants have made great kingdoms. And then um, another 200 years later, you have David and Solomon. So, so they'd be really famous by then, wouldn't they? All legends, etc. If you look at the genealogy, which Homer ascribes to Darda going down to Ilus and to Tros and to Priam, the king of Troy, at the time of the Trojan War. Now, the Trojan War, according to Greek sources, such as Thucydides, who was a very exacting historian, he, he aspired to be very exacting. Let me put it that way. If you look at Greek sources, the Trojan War can be estimated to have been around 1200 to 1180 BC in there. So, if you look at Homer's genealogy from Darda down to Hector, Priam and his son Hector, then you can very readily imagine that Darda came to the Troad around the time of the Exodus. Yes, sir, you can. I think it's six or seven generations that he counts from Darda down to Priam. Six or seven generations easily consume 200 to 250 years. And 250 years before the Trojan War, you have the Exodus. Now, I haven't written on that, but I do have it in my notes that have been in storage for 12 years. And I'm sorry, I just can't get to them to write on it. But the notes are there, so someday I might get it in writing and expand on my so, paper. So he could have been with um, Cadmus and Danaeus. Like they could have all been together and went to Crete and then just all went their own ways from there. Well, well Cadmus was associated with the Danans who had gone to Greece from Egypt. And Cadmus is also associated with Minos, the, the Phoenician king of Crete. So it, it's a slightly different fork in the same road, basically. So you think they might be confused and he might have come a little bit later with the Phoenicians because he... Um... Uh, Tacitus said he came with a fleet of 200 Phoenician ships and introduced the alphabet, right? Yes. Yes, I, I really believe that the there was intercourse between the Israelite inhabitants of Phoenicia throughout history, throughout the Judges period, and even throughout the Kingdom period. And that the later Greeks did confound some of the some of the myths, some of the legends, and put them together. But the fact that they did that shows us that they belong together. So it, it's a two-edged sword. There's two sides of the coin. 
But I believe that discourse was constant during that period because those people had a common origin in Egypt, the Danans and the Trojans and the Phoenicians all had a common origin in Egypt. So if you look at all the ancient accounts of the settling of Greece and of Troy, now there's the Ionians. They are separate. They are nothing to do with this. They're in Greece, and they're on the coast of Anatolia, but they're, they're, they're a different people who were there much longer. We're talking about Dorians, Danans, Phoenicians, and Trojans. And they basically all came from the same origin or sources, according to what we can surmise from the ancient Greek records, such as those of Homer, Herodotus, Diodorus Siculus, and so forth. We will discuss this over the next several presentations in the series. Concerning the nobility of the Trojans, the Greek geographer Strabo of Cappadocia wrote of them that they waxed so strong from a small beginning that they became kings of kings, Geography Book 12. And he described the Trojan dynasties, which ruled over all the related peoples, which includes the Carians, the Lycians, the Mysians, the Lelegas, and the Calicians. That's in Geography Book 13. And all of those people came from the islands of the sea and were descended from the Phoenicians. Even in the defeat of Troy, after Troy was destroyed, the Trojans were considered a noble race and Trojan princes were considered true royalty. The Malaysians from Miletus. Now, some people might pronounce that Malaysians so that it's not confused with the island in Southeast Asia, right? The Milesians, or Malaysians, from Miletus in ancient Caria were Phoenicians who had colonies along the Danube River Valley, on the Black Sea, and as far away as Iberia and Ireland, all by the 8th century BC. They had those colonies. Now, in Ireland... Malaysian princes were considered the legitimate kings of the island for many centuries. But it is evident that those princes had descended from the Trojans because the people of Miletus were Carians who were ruled over by a Trojan dynasty. Geography, Book 13. And of course, um, you have that red hand symbol, right, which we, we don't know where it comes from, but is interesting. And, and, and originally it had like a cord around it. Now they've changed it to a, to like a Jewish star, but possibly it might have come from Zara, right? Maybe. Yes, that could be that. that I would. Um, I would concede that very well could be the source of the famous Irish Red Hand. 
which was passed down through the centuries and became a that the original reason was forgotten and it became a myth but it's no doubt always been a symbol of at least some people in Ireland I don't know if it was universal in Ireland maybe you could answer that uh, the O'Neill dynasty and and from there like um, he had several sons who became their own dynasties and it spread out but but it always kind of remained and and now they've they have a silly tradition that apparently when uh, they came to Ireland, whoever touched the island first would become king. So a guy chopped off his hand and threw the hand on the island. That's what they say now, but I think that's nonsense. It certainly is. does seem like nonsense, I agree. That This leads to another point of discussion. Why would Phoenician tribes, tribes that later came from Tyre, and established colonies in on the coasts of Calicia, Licia, Caria. Caria is the famous district in southwest Anatolia, where the city of Ephesus was later established, as well as Miletus. Why would these Phoenicians? In, who established themselves in these various places, why would they voluntarily accept to be ruled over by Trojan princes, even after Troy was destroyed by the Greeks? So we have to retain that information, because once it's discovered that these Phoenicians are Israelites, and these Trojans are Judah, descended from Darda, the Darda of First Kings... Chapter 4, who's called Dara in First Chronicles chapter 1, verse 6? Somehow that D must have got dropped by a copyist. That's my opinion. But why would they, the Phoenicians, accept these Trojans to be their rulers if this wasn't the fulfillment of that prophecy that the sons of Judah would, that the tribe of Judah would rule over the rest of Israel. Yeah, if they believed that Yahweh was with uh, Judah, wherever a king of Judah went, they would have success, then they would want a Trojan prince to rule over them, right? To lead them. So at the time, not now and not since, but at some time in the distant past, these Phoenicians that were making these settlements must have recognized these Trojans, these Phoenicians being Israelites, must have recognized these Trojans as their rightful rulers in order to accept Trojan princes as their kings. And um, Bill, sorry, um, was it also true that the Greeks, that their, well, at least the Dorians and that, their god originally was uh, Jove, not Zeus? And that, that carried on to the Romans. But originally it was Jove, right? That's hard to tell because of the mix. There's a mix of cultures in Greece. There's a, there's a mix of myths and religions. Even though a large number of Dorians came into Greece and had prospered there and multiplied greatly, 
into the islands of the Greeks and the coasts of Anatolia. In spite of that, it's the Athenian culture and literature that prevailed so that we only have a, a sketch of what the Dorians themselves believed about themselves. Now, that sketch actually proves for us that the Dorians were Israelites. And we find it in the words of Flavius Josephus. We find it in the book of Maccabees, the first book of Maccabees, that the Dorians were actually Israelites and that they knew they were Israelites. But in the literature of the Greeks, the Athenian myths and, and legends were predominant. So the Athenian language relating to God and creation were what prevailed. So Zeus prevailed over Yahweh. Of course, the Dorians must have known about Yahweh because they wrote to the people in the temple in Jerusalem, perhaps about 170, 180 BC, and admitted being, by their own writings, they admitted being the offspring of Abraham and kindred to the people of Judah. And a Dorian king wrote that letter, and it's recorded in 1 Maccabees, and it's recorded by Flavius Josephus. So there's two witnesses to the veracity of the letter. But in yeah, Greek that's very culture... specific for him to actually know of Abraham, not, not just say... Um, we come from uh, Egypt or, or um, Israel, but he actually knew about Abraham, so he must have been familiar with this story, right? Exactly. But in Greek culture and writing, in Greek literature, the Athenian perspective prevailed, which was an Ionian Greek perspective. And we see that all throughout Greek literature. Even from men like Herodotus of Halicarnassus, Herodotus was a Dorian by race, but all of his expressions of culture in, in his literature seem to be from the Athenian perspective, where he used terms like Zeus and, and all of the ancient Greek myths that were perpetuated primarily by Athenians. That's my opinion on that question. The Roman poet Virgil, in his Aheneid, Aheneid means sort of like the story of Aheneus, right? Of Aheneus, or about Aheneus. In his Aheneid, he tells a story of how the Trojan prince Aheneus, one of the brethren of Hector, the, the, the hero of Troy who fell with the city, how Aheneus, after Troy's fall, led a large colony of Trojans to what is now Italy, founding a settlement called Alba Longa. These people later became known by the name of that settlement's most famous city, which was Rome. Rome wasn't founded for another 450 years after Rahenius most likely arrived in Alba Longa, so they were later called Romans. Strabo tells us that the migration of Aheneus is a traditional fact, along with the diaspora of other Trojans, book three of his geography. And he discusses 
such things at length in several places of his geography, in Book 6, in Book 13, and, and elsewhere. Strabo also relates the descent of Julius Caesar from Ahenius, as Virgil had done, and how Alexander the Great also claimed to have his descent from Trojan princes, although Strabo inferred that Alexander's claim, or I should say implied, that Alexander's claim is not as well supported as the claim of Caesar. Having a pedigree from Trojan princes, even 1,200 years after the Trojan War, one could then make a legitimate claim to rulership. The connection of Darda to Judah, regardless of the fact that it is only mentioned in Scripture, cannot be taken lightly. It should be taken seriously at least by Christians. The hell with everybody else. What they think doesn't matter. Although much of Theodorus Siculus's book seven is lost, in chapter five in the Loeb Classical Library Edition, chapter five of book seven, we see preserved in Eusebius's chronicle, where Eusebius repeated Theodorus's account of the Trojan migration and settlement in Italy under Ahenius, and the descent of the family of Julius Caesar from that Trojan prince. So Eusebius was, was citing and repeating an account in a part of Diodorus, the history of Diodorus Siculus, which is now lost, but which Eusebius had 1,600 years ago, but it's lost today that portion of Diodorus. Eusebius accepted that account by Diodorus, and he described Diodorus as having gathered in summary form all libraries into one, one in the same clearinghouse of knowledge. So that was the intent of Diodorus Siculus, to take all of the ancient history that he could attain and to compile it into his own library of history. And throughout his work, he mentions hundreds of ancient authors whose works are now lost to us. And Strabo did very much the same thing in his own geography. He mentioned hundreds of ancient authors on the various places and people that he described. And most of those ancient authors, their work is now lost to us. We think we have a lot of the history of our antiquity in the surviving classics, but the truth is we only have a small fraction of what was known in ancient times of our history in these surviving classics. We only have a fraction of it. The Romans legitimized their rule over the over the world, over the Oikumene, by their descent from the noble Trojans. And those claims were recognized even in the Middle Ages. Moving on, later, in the 6th century, 6th century AD, the historian Procopius informs us that the Byzantine emperor Justinian, now Procopius was a member of Justinian's court, 
and Procopius was the secretary to Justinian's most famous gen general, Belisarius. So Procopius was an insider in the rule of Justinian. And he informs us that the Byzantine emperor was originally from Illyria, and that he was of the tribe of the Dardanians. So Justinian was also a Trojan in fulfillment of the blessing for Judah, which said that of him there would come lawmakers as well as kings. The old Roman legal code was revised, and additions were made by Justinian, which would be the basis for European law until modern times. And it still affects Western law today. Justinian's laws also established the papacy, the primacy of the Bishop of Rome over all other Christian bishops. So we could thank Justinian for that. That's in his novels, his novelle constitutions, which are new laws that he added to the old Roman laws that he revised. He added a volume of new laws, and that's in his new laws in chapter 130. And uh, ironically, the Pope became more powerful than the kings of the uh, uh, Byzantine Empire, right? Right. I don't think that Justinian really had that in mind, but yes, that was the outcome. In medieval times, Trojan princes were considered to be legitimate, rightful kings, and noblemen sought to connect themselves to the houses of those princes in order to legitimize their own positions or their own contentions to be princes and kings. So in the reign of the Merovingian kings, and I'm quoting the Oxford history of medieval Europe, Frankish pride in their own achievement bore fruit in Dagobert's reign in the emergence of the tradition that the Franks were descended from the Trojan royal family and were thus equal to the Romans. That I don't know if that was a tradition, more or less a claim. Yet while Roman claims had the full support of history, such Frankish claims did not. More credible are the claims concerning the kings of the Britons, and Virgil relates that they too were a colony from the Trojans of Italy, although the Greek historians do not state as much. And, and I think that Virgil was making a fantastic account there. Diodorus Siculus does tell us of the British that they used chariots, even as tradition tells us the old Greek heroes did in the Trojan War. There are definitely connections of the British to the ancient Phoenicians, and possibly also to Trojans. But I think that Virgil was taking license in the story of Brutus. I don't agree with it because it has no other witnesses over a period of 1,100 years, right? So, Strabo says 
for the purposes of war, they, meaning the Bretons, use chariots for the most part, just as some of the Kelty do. This was learned when Caesar invaded Britain, an event to which both Diodorus and Strabo were referring. Strabo, if he was alive at Caesar's invasion of Britain, which I don't think he was born yet, he would have been an infant at the time. But Diodorus was an adult and was writing his histories as Caesar invaded Britain. Yeah, I think Britain had um, a lot of mixed tribes and um, maybe one of the tribes what came from the Trojans, but there were a lot of different ones. You know, you even had the Kimri who, who must have come over from, from Germany, the Belgi, uh, you know, and loads of others, a whole mixture of tribes, and they all had their own territories and their I, own kings. Yes, I agree. That's absolutely certain. The, the, um, the point of all this is that the Trojans, they were recognized as legitimate and rightful kings by all these other nations and peoples. Why? Even as late as medieval France, the Romans based their own claims that they should rule the world on the fact that they descended from a Trojan prince. Did you, um, I read somewhere, but I, I can't remember where it was from, that, um, sorry, I pronounce it Aeneas, that, that's probably wrong, but, um, uh, when Aeneas was was in the Battle of Troy, that um, when the Greeks went to sack the Troy, he managed to barricade a portion of Troy up, and then uh, eventually it came to a stalemate, and the Greeks agreed to let him go, and um, he could take all, all the people with him. They were allowed to take one spoil with them, what one bag, and um, Aeneas, um, instead of um, taking a bag, he took his father instead and carried his father. And the Greeks uh, were amazed and uh, respected him for doing that, that um, rather than taking gold, he instead took his father, who, who actually was very old and died shortly after anyways. But maybe um, if that's true, that Yahweh rewarded him and, and his name lives on today, right? Well, well yes, I, I can't really contend with that, but I don't know the source for that because there were all different legends and myths that had come about the Trojan War that were much later than Homer. Now, Homer is writing, and I'm confident that I could establish this, Homer is writing in the last decade of the 7th century BC. He's writing about 610 to 600 BC. And I, I know that because he records, or, or at least mentions, the destruction of Phrygia by the Cimmerians. And that didn't happen until at least 610 BC, because those same Cimmerians are the Kimri who had engaged in the destruction of the cities of the Assyrians in league with other Scythians, because the Cimmerians were Scythians, as well as the Persians and the Medes and the Babylonians. And that's in inscriptions. So after the destruction of the cities of the Assyrians, which was for the most part affected by 612 BC, the Cimmerians had gone through Anatolia in a westerly direction 
and destroyed Phrygia. They destroyed the Phrygia of the famous King Midas. Everything he touched and turned to gold. Well, I guess he didn't touch enough Chimerians. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But the Chimerians destroyed Phrygia, and they went on to sack Ionia and, and some of the cities of Lydia before they are said to have crossed the Bosporus and gone up to the coast of the Black Sea and the plains of Hungary, following the Danube to the Hungarian plains. So they're found 500 years later fighting against the Romans in Germany. And the Chimerians became Germans. That's where some of them also crossed into Britain, probably in the 5th or 4th centuries BC, and were known as Kimri. That's my opinion of that, which is already explained probably in my German origins papers, if I remember correctly. And um, as for Alexander, he um, when the, am I pronounced this right, the Heraclidati invaded um, southwest peninsula of Greece, um, they took that part and one of the princes got kicked out and he went to Macedonia and that's the dynasty that spawned Alexander. And funny enough, on his mother's side, he was said to have been descended from Hercules, right? So, so it's, if that's true, it's, it's interesting, his genealogy, right? Well, well right. It's very possible. I, I, I wouldn't repeat it as doctrine, but it's very possible. And, and the... Heraclidahi were basically Phoenicians. And and I think that the Heracles story actually is a tale which represents something of something much greater, a much greater struggle. Because Heracles seems to have its origination in the Hebrew Ha Rakalim, which means the merchants. So the Heraclidahi were ejected from from the Peloponnesus by the Dorians, but I'm sorry, by, by the original Ionian inhabitants. They were ejected. The merchants were ejected. That's how I see that from the Peloponnesus, and they were called the sons of Heracles, right? And they came back with the Dorians. They brought the Dorians back with them on ships and and conquered the Peloponnesus. That's how I see that legend, that the merchants were behind it. And they were remembered as the sons of Heracles. But that phrase, ha-rakalim, in Hebrew is how to say the merchants. So I see a connection there that I can't unsee once I, I had first seen it. And I think that was pointed out by a mainstream academic, but it makes perfect sense. It really does. The travels yeah, of just Heracles. Yeah, an alternative name to Phoenicians, right? The, the traders, the merchants, the, the, the sailors, you know. Yes. And they were becoming a threat to the Athenians, to the Ionians, I should say. Now, I, I believe that that's bec- that they have different names, Argives and Pulaski and things like that. 
I believe that they were all different branches of the Ionian Greeks, the Chepetite Greeks. And um, doesn't Tacitus even say that originally the Ionians uh, were on the left coast of Greece as well, but the Danans and Dorians kicked them out of there, and then they went to Anatolia, and they were kicked out of there, so slowly they were squished and pushed from all sides until eventually it was pretty much just Athens. I have mixed views on that. In the 9th century BC, I believe the 9th century, the Athenians had actually crossed the Aegean Sea and looted, pillaged, and even occupied a lot of the Phoenician cities that were there, that were established there. Miletus was one of those cities, and Ephesus was another. Now, they didn't destroy all of the Phoenicians in those regions, but they did make for themselves a large presence in those cities that the Phoenicians couldn't displace them. But in the ensuing centuries, there were constant wars between that the Dorians and the Ionians, which is the, the principal city of the Ionians is, of course, Athens, and the principal city of the Dorians at the time was Sparta. So you had the Peloponnesian Wars between Athens and Sparta, and you also had the Persians, which they united to contend with the Persians. But once the Persians were defeated, it was the Persians that constantly instigated the Athenians to make war with the Spartans. And the Peloponnesian Wars were in large part instigated by Persia, trying to weaken its enemies to the West so that they could eventually come back again. That's why Alexander, That's one reason why Alexander the Great destroyed the Persians. There were others that had to do with mercantilism, with trade. I think we've established our, our reasons for these Trojan princes and why they were always seen as royalty. They were always seen as the legitimate royalty throughout ancient and medieval European history. Yeah, yeah. And even if they were unconscious of it, it makes sense that Judah would rule over the uh, over Europe or the Israelites. And that even if they didn't realize the Trojans were Judah, nonetheless, they accepted them as the rightful rulers and leaders, right? So, so fulfilling the prophecy, whether they were conscious of it or not. Right, exactly. And, and I'm sure they were probably only conscious of it for a couple of generations. And, and later on, they were more conscious of simply being Trojans and being noble for that reason alone. We're going to move on and discuss... One of the aspects of the blessings made to Levi, made of Levi, I should say, and, and that's the parallels between the Druids of Europe and the Levitical priests. We're probably not going to finish this segment today, but we will finish it in our next presentation. So, so the following are really 
what I'm about to present here are really just citations that I've gathered from various works of history that I've read. And, and I'm going to cite Strabo and Diodor Siculus again, but I'm going to start with the Annals of Ireland. And this is summarized from a program that I did with, from two programs that I did with Sven Longshanks in 2015 on the Druids and early Christianity in Britain. Before I begin this segment, that there's a voluminous reference called the Annals of Ireland, translated from the original Irish of the Four Masters. Those four masters were medieval Irish scholars. Three of them were from one family. And the edition which I have, which I have here in print, is a reprint of a translation by Owen Connellan, which was originally published in 1846. The Annals cover the years 1171 to 1616 AD, but the notes of the Four Masters contain information from many old Irish myths and legends, as well as from older writers. The so-called Four Masters, as well as other contributors to the work, were mostly Irish historians in the employ of various Irish kings, and they were working in castles and monasteries. The annals were compiled from records which had been collected from all over Ireland. The notes, many of them quite lengthy, were composed by scholars and primarily drawn from a large body of ancient Irish literature. And when I say ancient in this instance, I'm talking about Irish literature which dates to perhaps 8 to 1100 AD. So it's not really ancient on a biblical scale, but it is ancient on an Irish scale. It's literature that's perhaps 12 or 1300 years old. This work is comprised of two large volumes of around 350 pages each, and even though I acquired my copy over six years ago, I still haven't the time to read it completely. I haven't. I've only read sections of it. Before we examine some of these Irish legends, I should start with that of Heriman, who is said to have been the first Milesian or Malaysian king of Ireland. Now, in my opinion, the date given for his rule is far too early, 1600 and something BC, is at least 500 years too early. But the records for the period are only from word of mouth for many centuries and no surviving attempt to set them in writing predates the 11th century AD. In my opinion, these legends, which were recorded at that time, confound biblical accounts and the mythical accounts from Irish antiquity as the medieval monks attempted to reconcile them all. So I, I think that this history chronologically isn't very accurate in many places. 
overall, yeah, I think um, a lot I believe there's a lot of substance to it. Years, as you said, if you add on 500, then it makes a lot more sense. In in a lot of the stuff, I remember reading that that it was just a common error that they had. Yes, I'm certain it was. I'm certain it was a common error. Okay, this Harriman, this first Molesian king of Ireland, is said to have had a brother named Heber. And their father was Mil Espana, the king of Spain. And their mother is said to have been named Scata Tefi. So that's the tradition of Tia Tefi right there, right? Which I don't accept as historical. Harriman and Heber, which are very clearly both Hebrew names had conquered Ireland and for a short time had ruled together as kings until Heber is said to have been slain by his brother Harriman. I believe that name Harriman is probably related to the name Herman of Mount Herman, which can describe an imprecation or a curse, but which is also defined as describing a sanctuary by some writers. I don't accept that. But it's quite close to Heman uh, in the um, Zara's descendants as well, just coincidentally, right? Mm, I, I don't. Oh, sorry. I don't mean that they're the same person. I just mean that the tradition of you reusing similar names throughout well, the yes, generations. It, you know, it's possible, right? Yes, I, I would accept that. So Harriman killed his brother Heber. I didn't examine the reason, and ruled Ireland alone. <clears throat> now, they also ruled parts of Alba, which is modern Scotland. And, and I'll mention that in passing a little later in this paragraph. In the Book of Invasions, parts of which date to as early as the 8th century, most of it dates to like the 11th century, was reconstructed. It's a reconstruction of ancient legends and myths concerning the waves of immigration into Ireland, right? So parts of the Book of Invasions date to as early as the 8th century AD, which is still not very old, right, compared to the biblical timescale. But it is pretty old in, in European literature. In the Book of Invasions, the Malesians, or Malaysians, were said to have been the last people to invade Ireland after the Fomorians, who were described as giants, one-legged giants, so that's mythical, the Firbolgs, who are actually fairly historical, and the Tawatha de Danon, who were certainly historical. During the rule of Harriman, the Picts... Now, I think that this is anachronistic, right? This is certainly anachronistic. Were said to have come to the island. Whereupon, Harriman had given them both the wives of the conquered Danans, because they took the island from the Danans, and the land which became known as Scotland... While this is a rough summary, 
I do not accept these myths as being completely historically accurate. But I do accept the fact that they represent various aspects of history, of actual history, in a fanciful manner. With them, we can piece together a rough history of the settlement of Ireland from the more accurate and better recorded perspective of classical history. So, in my opinion, the Firbolgs may have been early Japhethite settlers, or perhaps Galatahi, Gauls, or Gales from the mainland, who contended for possession of the island with the Tawatha de Danon, which is a portion of the tribe of Dan. So therefore, some writers, academic writers, connect the names Firbolg, the Bolg part of Firbolg, and Belge. And I think that that connection is probably correct. Then Molessians from Spain, who were Phoenicians of Miletus that previously settled in Spain, extended their presence in Western Europe to inhabit Ireland. So the ancient names of these places are Iberia and Hibernia. The Phoenicians also having settled in Britain, as well as later Galatahi, known as Kimri, after the Cimmerians. Strabo called the Irish the Britons of Iris. He did not distinguish them from the British. He called them the Britons of Iris, as he had called Ireland Iris. So, so that's my preface on this information that we're about to present. Yeah, I think the Tuatha de Danon, they um, took the entire land and then the Malaysians, if I, if I remember correctly, they sent, uh, the king sent his uncle over to the Danans saying he wanted to settle and they slaughtered him. So then the Malaysians invaded and demanded half the island for themselves or battle. And the Danans chose battle, and then the M Malaysians uh, prevailed, and they gained the country. And um, the Danans had a small portion up in the north, which they kept, which the Malaysians allowed them, and that was called Donegal, or after Dan Danigal, if uh, I remember all correctly. That that's at least the myth, but you know who knows if that's exactly how it happened, right? Well, well, right, and and I believe that. Or, or I lean towards, or I have the opinion that the Danans were probably there first, and that the the Belge or Firbolgs probably because the Galatahi claim came centuries later. The Galatahi were not in Gaul before the fifth century BC. There were Phoenicians. There were Phoenician settlers in Gaul. Now, it's possible that the Firbolgs were Phoenicians who had a separate pattern of migration to the west than the Danans. It's very possible the Firbolgs were Phoenicians who were there earlier and that the apparent relationship between the name Firbolg and Belge is just a coincidence. That's possible. But I believe that the Firbolg were probably Belge. They were Galatahi who had 
crossed the channel, just as the Kimri had crossed the channel, and they were Galatahi, or Chimerians, and Galatahi is, of course, the Greek name, which the Romans had not adapted, seemed to have adapted as Gauls. So, the Galatahi crossed the channel and contended with the Danans for Ireland. That is, to me, the most probable scenario. But that historians, Irish historians, 1,300 years later, probably confuse the facts. That's my opinion. So... So, so they say um, Belgi, uh, Firbolg first, then Danon, and then Malaysian. But you think it would have been Danons, then Firbolgs, then Malaysian, just from a logical historical perspective? Yes, from a logical historical perspective, that's the way it would have had to be if the Firbolgs should be associated with the Belge. That's the way it would have to be. But if the Firbolgs should not be associated with the Belge, then it's possible that the Firbolgs had another origin, and the most likely origin would be either early Japetites or Phoenicians, who preceded the Danans. And um, as for the whole giant stuff, you don't think any, any Rephaim or Canaanites fled to Ireland and then were wiped out? Yeah, you know, that's always a question, and, and I'll explain why. Because there's no historical evidence that the Rephaim or Canaanites were ever a seagoing people. Do you see what I mean? There's no yeah, better, yeah, exactly. They, there's they no biblical um, evidence, there's no historical evidence. They explore of Europe. They weren't interested in that. Right. The Canaanites... There were Canaanites that were employed by the Phoenicians as slaves on their galleys, without question. And, and through that manner, that there must have been at least some Canaanites who got into the Phoenician colonies abroad. That can't be denied, but we don't really know how closely they kept their slaves. So... We don't really have a good view of that. But it's very clear that they were used as slaves in, in the biblical accounts of ancient Israel. So, that that's an unfortunate incident of history, but it can't be denied. But were the Canaanites ever a seagoing people by themselves? There's no evidence of it. And even Herodotus, now, now, if you look at the biblical accounts in Judges, the book of Joshua, the account in Josephus, when we can determine that the city of Tyre was established, Josephus informs us that the city of Tyre was established. I think it was 240 years, I might be off by a couple, before the temple was built by Solomon. So, if the temple was built by Solomon, let's estimate that to 950 BC, after the death of David. Then Tyre was established as a city, the, the city-state of Tyre, the island, was established about 1200 BC, right around the time of the Trojan War, or shortly thereafter. And that makes perfect sense to me, because Homer when he described the entire world of his time, 
he mentioned Sidon, the city Sidon, to the north of Tyre, but he never mentioned Tyre. He mentioned Phoenicians, but he never mentioned Tyre, which very quickly became the preeminent city of the coast. So if Homer never mentioned Tyre, I can only imagine that Homer did not think Tyre had existed at the time of the Trojan War. And that makes sense because Josephus informs us in a time frame of, of Solomon in the temple that Tyre didn't really exist yet or that it was perhaps just being built at the time of the Trojan War. Tyre is the site of a very old city that predates the arrival of the Israelites and their conquest of Canaan. But I've seen archaeological studies that help establish that Tyre was in a destroyed state at that time. So the Israelites actually built or rebuilt a very ancient city. And that makes sense if you understand that in the Septuagint, and we're going to um, discuss this probably in a couple of weeks, in the Septuagint, in the inheritance of Naphtali, I believe it's Naphtali, because sometimes I confuse the inheritances of Naphtali and Zebulun, so I have to check my notes, but I believe it's Naphtali, that the tribe of Naphtali, even though the city of Tyre was in the territory of Asher, the tribe of Naphtali would inherit the city of Tyre and the walled cities of the Tyrians. That's in the Septuagint, but it's missing in the King James Version and the Masoretic Text. So it seems that the Jews dropped a couple of lines from the text when they made the Masoretic text. Because I don't know why that would be added to the Septuagint if it wasn't original. In Herodotus, he explains that the Phoenician colonies throughout the Mediterranean came from Tyre. He says that explicitly. He does not say that they came from Sidon. I don't know if we have um, anything to add to that. Well, the, um, if the Israelites built Tyre, then clearly it was an Israelite city, right? You could argue that Sidon was already there, and maybe, uh, so, I believe not all the Canaanites were exterminated. And if all these colonies over Europe came from Tyre, from the Israelites, then they're clearly they're, they're all these people were white. It only proves, as we've said many times, that the Israelites were white, right? Right. If you look at the places where in the book of Joshua and Judges, the places where it says the Canaanites were left, that the children of Israel failed to destroy them. Tyre is not mentioned among those places. Sidon is. And we see in, in the first book of Kings, a little later on, that Solomon had put all of the Canaanites who remained in Sidon into bondage. He made them all slaves. 
But there were no Canaanites in Tyre, and Solomon didn't make any Canaanites in Tyre slaves, because there were no Canaanites in Tyre. So we can assume that Tyre was, for the most part, all Israelite, while Sidon was a mixed city of Israelites dominating Canaanite slaves. Sidon is mentioned in Homer, where, where he gave an account that Achilles, the great Greek warrior hero, had sacked Sidon in the Iliad. That at one point, Achilles sacked Sidon. But Sidon, the Sidonians, there's nothing about them being particularly a seagoing people, even though there are Phoenicians mentioned by Homer who were seagoing and who were a great seagoing people. But the Phoenicians mentioned by Homer didn't necessarily come from Sidon, even though Tyre did not yet exist, was not yet built, or was just being built. In the book of Judges, in the Song of De Deborah, which must predate the building of Tyre by at least 100 years, the Song of Deborah in Judges chapters 4 and 5, Deborah asks, why did Dan remain in ships and Asher abode in his breaches? And if we examine, and that's the way the King James Version reads. And if we examine that word for breaches, it's actually a Hebrew word which was described, which was used to describe ports, port cities on the, on the coast. So Asher abode in his port cities because the tribe of Asher was on, their land was on the Mediterranean coast from Sidon all the way down south beyond Tyre. So it included Sidon and Tyre. We're getting ahead of ourselves because I plan on discussing all this at a little greater length in a few weeks. But it's, it, it's impossible to talk about the early Greeks the early Irish, the early British, the early Iberians, or Spanish, if I have to say, and, and not talk about the Phoenicians. The settlers of Ireland were clearly the Tuatha de Danon, or the tribe of Dan, and the Milesians, or Malaysians, as I often call them, who came from Miletus and Anatolia at an early time before their district of Caria was invaded by the Ionians and they established many colonies overseas before the Ionian invasion of Caria and they were Phoenicians according to all the ancient accounts. I don't know if you want to start with the Annals of Ireland or if you want to leave it for next week. I don't mind if, if you want to read uh, another page or two, or if you want to okay. wait, I don't mind, it's up to you. We'll get started with this. We're going to note some of the classical historians in this aspect a little later, but the Annals of Ireland show us where and what sort of paganism, where it came from and what sort of paganism it was into Ireland. And this is from a footnote on the Druids found on page 75 we must bear in mind that most of these footnotes came from medieval Irish scholars. They, these are not modern notes. The latest any of these notes are written is by the translator in 
when, when the book was published, right, in 1846. But the translator attributes these notes to Irish scholars that predate himself by at least 200 years. So these notes are no later than, most of these notes are no later than the 1600s. But some of these, as we'll see from some of the citations, were probably made by our translator who's compiling all of this information. So, this is from a footnote on the Druids found on page 75 of the Annals of Ireland. About nine centuries before the Christian era, according to our ancient analysts, the ancient historians, Tigernmas, monarch of Ireland, of the race of Heriman, so he's a descendant of Heriman, was the first to introduce Druidism and the worship of idols into Ireland. Now, I don't, what, what he means by idols, because I haven't seen a lot of idolatry among the Druids mentioned in other sources. And it is stated that while worshipping the idol, Krom Kruach, the chief deity of the Irish Druids, along with the vast assemblage of his subjects at Magsilacht, and, and I'm going to destroy some of these Irish names, right? Magsilacht in Briefna on the feast of Samhuin, one of their deities, the day dedicated to whose rites was the same as the last day of October. He himself, with three-fourths of his people, were struck dead by lightning. As a punishment from heaven, these, this is all written from a Christian perspective, for his introduction of idolatry into the kingdom. Magsliakta signifies either the plane of adoration or the plane, plane of slaughter, meaning the place, and obtained its name from the druidical rites performed there or from the human sacrifices which the pagan Irish offered up to the deities of Druidism, as the Canaanites offered up theirs to Moloch. In this place stood a famous temple of the Druids, with the great idol, Krom Kruak, surrounded by twelve minor idols, composed of pillar stones and decorated with heads of gold. This temple and its idols were destroyed by St. Patrick, who erected a church on its site. Of these events, accounts are given in the life of St. Patrick by Jocelyn the monk, in, and, and he's referring to historical history books which have repeated this account. In Cambrensis Aversus, published in the 13th century, in O'Flaherty's Ogigia, published in 1685, and Valancey's Collectania, published from 1870, to, or written, I should say, from 1870, to, from 1770 to 1804. Magsliacht was situated in the present barony of Mohill, county of Leitrim, and afterwards received the name of Fiadnach which may signify a wild or woody district. 
Fenag in After Ages had celebrated had a celebrated monastery and college, and was long famous as a seat of learning and religion. Cromliacs of huge stones and other druidical remains are to be seen at Fenag to this day. Brefni was inhabited in the early ages by the Firbolgs. Now this is this author is writing this in the 1840s, by the Firbolgs, who are called Belge, or Belgians, by various writers. Afterwards, by the Malaysians of the race of Ir, a descendant, descendants of Ir, I-R, or the Clana Rory, and lastly, by the Malaysians, or Malaysians, of the race of Harriman. The Firbolgs who possessed Brefni are mentioned by the ancient writers under the names of Ernada, Ernanians, or Ernahians, I would pronounce that, and Ernaics, which names are stated to have been given them from their inhabiting the territories about Loch Erna, E-R-N-E or urn, if you will, but I would pronounce that urna. I wouldn't know how an Irishman would pronounce it. Ptolemy, the great Greek geographer of the second century, denominates them urnidi, urnidoi, or urdinoi, as given in his map of Ireland by Ware, O'Connor, and others. These urnians, there seem to be many variations of how their names should be pronounced. These Ernians possess the entire country of Brefni and make a remarkable figure in the history of the early ages from the various great battles fought between them and the Malaysian kings. So here we have child sacrifice and stone circles among a certain class of priests in Ireland, which are said to have been 900 years before Christ. And this reflects the same practices which the scriptures attribute to the ancient Israelites at the very same time. The number of idols, which are 12 in addition to a chief idol, cannot be overlooked. We see references of a monument of 12 stones set up by Joshua in Joshua chapter 4, and an altar of the same number set up by Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18. So making monuments of 12 stones is something that was done in ancient Israel. Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests, which bear the Ark of the Covenant, stood. And they are there unto this day. Joshua chapter 4, verse 9. And uh, I think here you can also see that this author notes multiple uh, invasions by the Malaysians. And, and I think, you, you know, when we say um, Danans, Furbolgs, Malays, that's very general. I think they were constant invasions all the time and, and new colonies being set up and uh, the general history just only mentions the major ones you know when like 200 ships arrived and that that kind of scale invasions but it was constantly happening all the time right well right i would believe so people were always looking for new land they were always looking for new exploits that they uh, we have so many comforts today 
where you could go to a supermarket and buy salt. Where the ancient Greeks, they had to send out, and the ancient Romans also, they had to send out scouting expeditions to search the land for salt. And they'd go up and down the rivers, and, and they'd be searching the land and digging, and, and however they could recognize a salt deposit, and when they found a significant salt deposit, they would build a mine and, and make a settlement to protect it and start digging the salt and shipping it back to Rome or back to Sparta or Athens or wherever they had, from wherever they had come. People had to struggle in ancient times, to find resources like salt or copper or iron and to find arable land. Because not all, all of the land... Greece, I think the area which we know today is Greece, I think only like 12 or 13% of the land is arable, meaning only 12 or 13% of the land can be farmed can be planted, if I'm not mistaken. Greece is pretty damned rocky, and so are the coasts of Italy and Sicily and, and, and the, the Straits of Gibraltar and, and the Mediterranean coasts of Spain and France are, are very difficult to inhabit and to cultivate. So they were constantly looking for new land that was more arable and, and more hospitable. And they were fighting over that land when they found it. So the various tribes were always fighting over land. And you always had to be ready to defend your land. We don't have these experiences today. So it's hard for us to imagine why there would be so many invasions or incursions into a place like Ireland. Why it would be in why it would be so appealing to various tribes to possess it and to fight over it and to de die defending it because it was the life and death of your people. If they were put off their land, what did they have? They would be slaves to the invaders. They would be at the mercy. Their survival would be at the mercy of the invaders. Where do you go after Ireland? If you've gone from the Mediterranean to France to Spain, and you're constantly being pushed out by larger, more powerful tribes, or your tribe has grown to the point where it needs more land, where do you go? From Ireland, what do you have? Iceland? So it's quite difficult yeah, to it's survive. Great land on the British Isles. I mean, it's all pretty much farmable, right? Uh, very, very easy to farm. Uh, compared to the Mediterranean, you just can't grow all the um, hot temperature foods. But to live on, it's great, right? Well, well, that's why when the Germanic tribes had migrated westward, they didn't want to stay in Germany. They tried to push their way into the Roman Empire or to push their way into Gaul, where there was much more arable land in in Dacia, Pannonia, in in Italy. And, and in France, there was much more arable land and a much more hospitable climate. So they didn't want to stay in northern Germany, which was all heavy forests and swamps. So they tried to push their way into the empire. And eventually it fell. Not all German tribes were 
in a position to enjoy that fall and to inhabit better land. So some of them were always stuck in Germany, which is probably why the Angles and, and Saxons found Britain so appealing, I'm sure. Much better climate, much better land. From page, pages, from another footnote on pages 271 and 272 of the Chronicles of the Annals of Ireland. This, um, our first citation might be seen as tenuous, as weak or flimsy, but this will help us establish our connections to the Levites and, and the Hebrews of Scripture. And this is under an explanation of what a Kronliak is. And I know I'm probably butchering these pronunciations, but I can't help it. I just don't speak Irish. The name Kronliak, C-R-O-M-L-E-A-C, signifies the Stone of Krom. And they were so-called from being used in the worship of Krom, one of the deities of the Irish Druids. Said to represent fate, or, according to Lanigan and others, the god of fire, or the sun. And sometimes called Krom Dub, or Black Krom, and Krom Kruak, a name we saw in our previous note, signifying Krom of the heaps of stones, or cairns, as quoted by Lanigan from the Tripartite Life of St. Patrick, and the Idol of Crom Cruach, as stated in Lanigan and O'Flaherty's Ogigia. Lanigan and O'Flaherty evidently being notable historians of our author's past. Quoting from the Four Masters, and also in the Book of Invasions, by the O'Clarys. Now, the O'Clarys, they had been the, the, the final compilers of what we know as the Book of Invasions. But the O'Clary family also supplied three of the four masters that are the authors of these annals, these annals of Ireland. They all came from the O'Clary family. And also in the Book of Invasions by the O'Clary's, Crom Cruach was destroyed by St. Patrick at the Temple of the Druids on Magsliacht in Brefni, now, which is now called Fenag in Lightrim. And the last Sunday of summer is still held Domnach Croem Duib or the Black Sunday of Krom, being sacred to St. Patrick as the anniversary commemorating the destruction of the idol. This is the real origin of the name Kromliak, and not from the stones being in a sloping position, as absurdly stated by some writers, and derived from the opinions of the common people. The chief deities of the Druids were the sun, moon, stars, and winds, and woods, wells, fountains, and rivers were also objects of adoration. 
The sun was worshipped under the designation of Bel, Bel, or Baal, as by the Phoenicians and other eastern nations, and also under the name of Grian, G-R-I-A-N. The time dedicated to the worship of the moon was called Samhuin, which was one of their deities, and the wind was worshipped under the name of Gaoth. The sacred fire of Baal was lighted on the evening of the first day of summer, or May Eve. This is May Day, May 1st. At the Temple of the Druids on the hill of Usniag, situated a few miles from Mullingar in Westmeath. Hence, that day is still named in the Irish La Baal Tien. That is the day of Baal's fire, and today it's called Beltane, right? To this very day it's called Beltane, and that's May Day, or May 1st, on our modern calendars. The sacred fire of Samhuin was lighted on the eve of the first day of winter at Tiakga in Meath, another chief seat of Druidism, situated at a place now called the Hill of the Ward between Trim and Athboy, and and they're all place names, right? And in the Irish La Samna, or Samhuin's Day, is the name applied to the 1st of November. No fires were permitted to be lighted in Ireland, but those obtained from the Druids at May and November, who delivered their sacred fire to the people with great incantations, and for obtaining it, a payment of one scriopple, a silver coin equivalent to three three pence of modern money, was levied on every house or head of a family. Now, this is reminiscent of the biblical accounts prohibiting strange fire. Some remnants of the custom originating from the celebration of the sacred fire of the Druids is still preserved in the May fires lighted in Ireland. The oak was a tree sacred to the Druids, and the rites of Druidism were chiefly celebrated in the oak groves. And the name Druid, or in Irish, Dreoi or Druid, is supposed to be derived from the Irish Deir or Duer, D-U-I-R, Dweer maybe, which signifies the oak, or, according to others, it was derived from the Greek word drus, which also signifies an oak tree. I would say that all the words were related, right? They were related because they had a common origin. As the ancient Gauls are said to have taken the derivation of druid, meaning the name, from the Greek language, which their learned men spoke in Caesar's time. According to the I'm going to say this name in English because it's in French, right? According to the Dictionary of the History of Religious Cults, the word Druid was derived from 
D-E-R-W, or Duru, D-E-R-U, which in the Gaulish language signified an oak. So we have Irish, Gaulish, Greek all had roughly similar words for an oak. And it may be observed that Drus is the Greek for an oak, a word which resembles the Celtic. By Caesar, Pliny, and other Roman writers, the Gaulish word for Druids was rendered true to Druidahi and Druides. And by modern Latin writers, the word Druids has often been translated into Magi. And we're going to discuss the Magi after we discuss the Druids. Three of the Tuath de Danon kings of Ireland were named from their peculiar deities. One was called Mac Coyle, or Son of the Wood, as he worshipped the woods. Another, Mac Kaoct, or the Son of the Plow, his god being that chief emblem of husbandry. And the third, Mac Grian, as Grian, or the Son, was the great object of his adoration. Accounts of Irish Druidism will be found in Ware, Tolland, Keating, O'Halloran, and Valancey, and interesting descriptions of the Druids of Gaul and Britain are given in Caesar's commentaries. Here there are several, that there are, I'm not ready yet for, to discuss this paragraph, that there are several noted oak trees in the Hebrew scriptures. For example, in Joshua chapter 24, Verse 26, and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak. And that word oak is the Hebrew term for oak. Sometimes where it says oak in the King James Version, the word is a slightly different word, which refers to a terebinth tree. But here it refers to an oak tree. Set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of Yahweh. Here we see a direct reference to Baal worship, the keeping of the title Baal as a name for their idol, the worship in groves that is also seen in scripture of Baal worshippers, and then there is the worship of the host of heaven and the concept of sacred fire maintained by the priests, all of which are found in scripture in our Bibles. Yeah, and we also see, uh, we already mentioned this, that a lot of places are actually still named uh, Baal in um, Ireland, like Belfast, right? If you actually, Belfast is like um, a shortened anglicized name. If you actually look up the true name uh, in Irish, sorry, I had it up, but just got to get up. It's actually um, Bell and then a separate word, Fierst. And they claim that the modern meaning is mouth of the sand bank. But I, I honestly think that Baal is just based on Baal, right? That it meant the uh, the sand bank of Baal. Uh, even to this day, it's named after that. It, it goes well beyond that. We have Bel Air, which is France. We have Belgrade in, in what? Where's Belgrade in Serbia? And, and Baal is all over Ireland. Yes, you're right about that. But it's also found in other diverse places in Europe. 
And it all those places were probably originally established by these Galatahi, who were Baal worshippers because they had come from the ancient Israelites. They and didn't bring um, they didn't the bring Yahweh Hanibal, with them, they brought Baal with them. Joy of Baal, right? I'm sorry. So, sorry, I, I interrupted. Uh, even the great general of the Carthaginians who fought the Romans, Hannibal, it means joy of Baal. Right. Uh, where did he get that name from if uh, he was a Carthaginian, right? Well, well absolutely. We have this, that this chain, the religious links between the Druids and the ancient Levitical priests of the Israelites are pagan links. There are some practices which seem to be the same as practices that the Levites had, and we could see that, but the Israelites had turned to paganism before they migrated out of Israel, or before they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, they turned to paganism. So they brought Baal with them. They didn't bring Yahweh with them because they became pagans, and we're told that right in our scriptures, that they became pagans. They worshipped golden calves, and they worshipped Baal from the time of Jeroboam 1 forward, which is probably about 900 BC. They were Baal-worshipping pagans. Elijah, the lone prophet of Yahweh, had faced 450 priests of Baal. So that should tell you the odds between the pagans and, and the, the, the keepers of, of the true God and the true religion in, in ancient Israel, in the time of Ahab, which is perhaps 860 BC. I'm just guessing, maybe a little later. When we return, we're going to speak about the Druids. We're going to continue this particular subject and this proof and speak about the Druids from the aspect of the Greco-Roman classical writers, Julius Caesar, Strabo, Diodorus Siculus, and the, the connections that the attributes that we believe are connections to the ancient Levitical priests and the Hebrews. Yeah, and there's a lot of connections that uh, we can show that only uh, strengthen the fact that uh, these were Israelite colonies, right? Absolutely. And, and you're right. Once we get all the other connections in place, that this, this narrative is indubitably true. Why would white Irishmen be worshipping Baal if the people of Palestine were Negroes. Are you going to tell me that white Irishmen didn't have their own God? And and how was that transfer made if the people of Palestine were black? The people of Palestine, of course, had to be white because everything that came from them and emanated from them was white. So it, it's ridiculous to think they were of any other race. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks, Hammy, and I look forward to next week where we'll continue this. Uh, thanks, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of our European people. Thank you. Absolutely. Praise Yahweh, and good night.